Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. I'm not going to lie, I've been looking forward to this episode for an extremely long time. Today's guest is incredibly unique. Doc J. Wright is a three-time IGFA world record holder in various line classes for speckled trout on fly. In addition to his world records, he's competed one against some of the best fishermen along the Texas coast, which we'll discuss here in a bit. But simply put, Doc is, a, is very good at targeting and catching world-class fish. Aside from that, though, he's an incredibly humble person and loves to share his passion. So, Doc, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I'll tell you, I'm just really honored to be doing this podcast and appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Doc, I, I'm humbled. To simply put, I know we've met and we fished a little bit over there in Florida when I lived there, which was an, an incredible experience for me. And so the fact is that we've continued to kind of foster that relationship and have it over the course of time, share some thoughts, share some things through kind of what we see in terms of our own pursuit for targeting certain fish in various estuaries. It's been really, really just, again, humbling to call you friend, but not only that, to kind of pick your brain and, and have you as a resource um, as part of kind of my endeavor. So, but I don't, I don't want to kind of take away anything there. I want to actually welcome you to the show and I want you to tell folks a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I grew up in, uh, the Tampa Bay area and, uh, moved to Texas to get my undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering at, uh, Southern Methodist university, which is in Dallas. Um, mm. I spent another eight years in Texas getting my medical degree. And uh, now I reside in uh, Windermere, Florida, uh, with my beautiful wife and uh, four amazing daughters. And uh, I have been a pain management uh, physician for the past 18 years. And uh, I just really enjoy uh, getting out and uh, chasing big trout as much as I can. Absolutely. And so when you, so in Dallas, you were at Southern Methodist, Southern Methodist, excuse me, I watched them play last night actually against Memphis. <laughs> yeah, it didn't <laughs> sorry turn about out that. so well. <laughs> I know, I <laughs> yeah, know. Exactly. I'm sorry, Doc. <laughs> but uh, after that, it. so so in the Dallas area, did you move and do like a residency along the coast or were you close yes, to the coast? Because there was some correlation there. Absolutely. I uh, I moved from Dallas to uh, Houston and, and that's where I okay. did my medical school. And of course, that was only about uh, an hour from, uh, you know, Galveston Bay, which is mm -hmm. where I started fishing a lot uh, when I was there. So when you were in Tampa Bay growing up there, I mean, did you target trout at all? I did. And, uh, you know, it was my late grandfather that uh, introduced me to trout fishing while growing up there. And what was interesting is that uh, he was actually a trout specialist himself. And no uh, yeah, and so he's the one that uh, really kind of passed that passion, you know, for catching trout uh, on to me. 
Do you remember catching your first trout with him? My first one with him? Um, no, I can't remember that. Does a certain uh, trip stand out to you uh, that you that you guys had together? Well, there is one trip, and you know, it's 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 a moment I'll probably never forget. Um, I was I was probably about twelve, or I'm sorry, about ten years old at the time, and uh, I witnessed my grandfather land an eight pound sea trout that he caught on one of those old salty dog shrimp imitations, uh, soft plastics, just like a yellow shrimp tail. Uh-huh. And uh, I'll tell you, you know. I just remember, you know, trying to net it and I couldn't get it in the net and he's screaming at me, but eventually, you know, <laughs> we, we got this fish in the net and I just couldn't believe, you know, it's, it's, it's massive size and then just how beautiful mm-hmm. it was. And, uh, you know, now some 40 years later, you know, I still, I still get that same excitement, you know, when I'm pursuing these, uh, these challenging fish. And that's, and that's the crazy part about it because, to think and, and we'll so let's let's not even let's not even belabor that point. Let's let's talk about it. So give give folks an idea of the three IGFA world records that you have. What what are they? Okay, well the three that I have um, are my first one was uh, also my biggest one, but that was the twelve pound tippet world record, um, and I caught an eleven pound. Uh, eight ounce trout, 11 and a half pounds. Oh, and, uh, my second record, um, which was the 20 pound tippet world record was, was actually a small fish, but, uh, that's all it took to, to beat the, uh, the previous record. Mm-hmm. And that fish was eight pounds, uh, 12 ounces. So eight and three quarters. Okay. Um, and then the third record that I recently obtained was the two pound tippet world record, and that was a nine pound fish that I caught on two pound tippet. Absolutely unreal. <laughs> and so to think, and the reason I asked you to do that was because when you were ten years old, netting a fish for your grandfather, eight and a half pound fish, understanding the joy and excitement, and then still having the same zeal to yeah. <laughs> target those fish and instill like, Oh my God, it's an 11 and a half pound fish. But doc, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I mean, you've probably caught hundreds of, of, of incredibly large fish that, that we would just die to catch one. Right. And so it's amazing. And, and we'll talk more about that, especially with regards to your pursuit and your, and your approach and all that and all of that. But was there, but, throughout the course of your time, was there a particular instance when you were like, you know what, I'm going to really just kind of target world-class fish? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I don't really remember, um, I guess a particular time, but I do remember an experience. Um, well, more of, more of, uh, the article that I read that was, uh, about the current IGFA all tackle world record a sea trout that was caught by um, Craig Carson in 1995. The 17th. Exactly. And uh, after I read that, I mean, I just became obsessed with, you know, wanting to try to fish an area that could produce a 17-pound trout. And this thing was 39 and a half inches long. I mean, just unreal. Um, And so because of that, um, me and my good friend and my former tournament partner in Texas, uh, David Friedel, uh, we mm-hmm. decided to uh, to pull my boat from Houston, you know, all the way to Fort Pierce, Florida, where that fish was caught. 
And, uh, and the bottom line was that, uh, we just had an incredible trip and, uh, by the end of it, you know, we had both caught our personal best trout and, uh, David actually caught a 10 and a half pound fish, just a monster. Um, Mm. so needless to say, I mean, we were really impressed and I just felt that, you know, we had only really scratched the surface, um, of what, uh, that area had to offer. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so after that trip, um, I knew that I wanted to move back to Florida, uh, because I just felt that that particular estuary, and and I'm talking about the lower Indian river lagoon, uh, on the East coast of Florida. I just Mm -hmm. felt like that gave me, uh, my best chance of catching a truly giant sea trout. And so that's when my pursuit, uh, for, uh, for these line class, uh, world records began. And, uh, well, go ahead. I was going to ask you, I mean, have you always been a fly guy or, or is, is no. it something that you've kind of matured into? Not at all. Um, in fact, um, you know, it was, it was not being able to catch a conventional tackle world record that moved me to fly fishing because hmm. all of the fly fishing world records were much smaller fish and they were much more obtainable. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there were, there were fish that were only eight pounds, like the, like the, uh, 20 pound tippet world record I caught. So that's what really pushed me, um, into becoming a fly fisherman. And, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I joined a fly fishing, a local fly fishing club. Um, and they actually, it's kind of funny because they knew I caught big trout all the time and, and they actually invited me to their club to, uh, to do a presentation (laughs) And so I, I did a, I did a presentation on catching trophy sea trout. And then mm-hmm. after that, just learned how to fly cast. And, uh, and now, you know, um, it's, it's really what I love to do. I mean, I will fish with conventional tackle, but, uh, but fly fishing is just my passion. Sure. Now, when you were on the Texas coast, you were not fly fishing. Is that correct? Not at all. No, I, and so, I never fly. How did you get into the tournament uh, scene during that time? Because I, I know through Mike and Jay and through Conversation Rousey, all of those guys talk about you and how you're really held in high regard and tremendous esteem that you have across not only uh, these tremendous anglers, but across the Texas coast in general. And so Wow. Well, I'm interested in kind of, that, but, uh, no, well, cool. <laughs> I'm telling you now you are. And so, but no, so tell me though, so you got into tournament fishing or was that something you just decided to do and, and talk to me about that before you've transitioned into, uh, fly fishing for world-class fish? Well, I, you know, when I went to medical school, um, I, we, we bought a house in Houston and it just happened that, uh, the guy that lived across the street from me was this, uh, um, sea trout fisherman <laughs> and that was David Friedel. <laughs> and, uh, and, you funny. know, he ended up being my, uh, tournament partner and, you know, we, I fished for several years when I was in medical school, but not in tournaments mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, but we started fishing together a lot and just became really best friends and, uh, and, through our, our, our fishing, uh, we realized that, you know, well, we're pretty good anglers and we decided to, uh, to try out 
uh, in a fishing tournament. And I remember the first tournament that we fished, it was a GCCA. It was actually called GCCA back then, <laughs> um, hmm, yeah. tournament. And, uh, and we were fortunate enough to uh, win that event. And so, you know, we just kind of got the bug after that. Um, mm-hmm. We started fishing the, uh, the old uh, Gulf Coast Trout Masters uh, tournament uh-huh. series. And, uh, and once again, you know, we, we, we did very well. Um, so, uh, you, you know, we'll go ahead. No. And I know from talking with Mike and Jay, I think that's how both of them know you and know of you. And it's funny, the term trout master, at least when I talked to Mike about it is that to earn the title trout master, you actually physically had to win like an actual trout master, event and so what have you won multiple or or how many did you win at that time yeah it's very fortunate as i said um i i won three tournaments um good gosh two of them and this is stiff competition it's crazy (laughs) anyway go ahead well two of them were uh in galveston which was basically you know that was my home waters but you know i never really fished in too many of the other um estuaries in texas Mm. um but uh yeah, I won three. Um, won a couple boats, which was pretty cool. That was that was awesome. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I uh, I also fished with my another really good friend actually that I met through through Trout Masters is uh, is Dr. John Gill, and both David okay, and I yeah. you know became really good friends with him, and now we we fish a lot together still. I mean, they come over here to Florida mm-hmm. to fish, and I go over to Texas and, and fish with them. And, uh, and, you know, John's just an exceptional angler. In fact, I would say that he's probably the best big sea trout angler that I know personally. Um, Hmm. but anyway, um, me and him, after I moved to Florida, he invited me back to, uh, to Texas to fish one of the Bath and Bay bashes. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and again, we were, we were lucky and, and won that tournament. So it's a lot of fun. That's amazing. So you fished there and then you transitioned back to Florida. What, what time frame was this? I moved back to Florida in uh, 2001. 2001. Yeah. Okay. And so you, and you registered your first world record when? The uh, first fish that I caught was in uh, 2007. Okay. Okay. Out of the three, Jay, um, which one do you hold in higher regard? Like, which one is like that one is if out of the three, this one's it, this one took so much, whatever. Um, well, I, I'd have to say it was definitely the two pound tippet world record. Um, uh-huh. that, that was a nine Why pound fish. And well, for, if I guess for anyone who's ever even attempted to fish with, a uh, true two pound <laughs> test line, uh, you'd understand why, but if you haven't, uh, you know, it, it, it's just amazing. It, it took me a really long time just to get used to fly casting with it without breaking it. I mean, I, you oh know, my if, God. If, if you were too aggressive on your <laughs> cast, you would actually just break the fly off, you know, in midair. Um, oh and it gosh. also took me a really long time just to learn how to, to fight fish. And, and when I say fight, I mean, that's a, a term used really loosely because you're not fighting these fish on two pound tippet. Um, you know, you can't even set the hook on two pound tippet. You just have to have to kind of, um, you know, keep, get some tension on it. Uh, once, once you see the fish eat, eat the fly, you just put a little slight tension on it, 
and and hope that it doesn't break. And then uh, you just have to let the fish do whatever she wants. And uh, eventually, they will tire out just by dragging your fly line all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it is just was it's exceedingly hard. I mean, I broke off so many fish, you know, trying to to master that uh, two pound tippet. Uh, and that's why, you know, I think that I hold that fish in such high regard. Um, mm-hmm. you ju- it, there just was no margin for error, basically. And somehow all the stars aligned and, and I was able to catch that fish. But I, there's also a couple other things um, that happened and that uh, made this, you know, even even more of a, a special fish. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but you were actually somewhat involved in one of them. And so, you know, we had just fished together for the first time in Mm -hmm. the Northern Mosquito Lagoon, like you were alluding to earlier. Um, And that was the spring of 2018. And unfortunately, you know, that was like the worst spring um, of fishing for big sea trout that that I've really ever experienced since I moved to Florida in 2001. and that was because, you know, the Mosquito Lagoon had started to deteriorate after all the algae blooms and massive loss of seagrass. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, I, I, when you came on that trip, I was optimistic about our chances to catch a big fish because I'd located some, some pretty solid trout uh, in the same mm-hmm. area that we fished about a week before. And, and uh, you know, there was grass well, in that area. And, and so... I thought we might have some good success, but, uh, you know how it is. <laughs> um, Oh yeah. I had just met cool. you and I'm trying to make this, <laughs> this good first impression on you. And, uh, uh, most of the fish that, that were there just moved on. And, and I remember we had trouble finding others, but anyway, you know, we decided to call it quits and, uh, relatively, uh, um, well, we, you know, we, we call it quits. And then I was, uh, on my way home. And I thought, you know what, there's still a little bit of daylight left. So I went down to the Southern end of the Mosquito Lagoon, uh, just to see what that looked like. And, um, sure enough, I was able to find an area holding some big trout. Um, and, and those trout were also near some of the last remaining grass. Um, Mm -hmm. so that area that I found that day or that evening after, you know, we had left, uh, turned out that that was the exact same spot that I caught that two pound record. And so, so what was amazing to me about that whole situation looking back is, uh, that had I gone home and had I never checked out that area that day, I don't think I would have mm-hmm. ever caught that world record fish. Um, so that was one mm-hmm. of the things that occurred. And, uh, the second thing that occurred, um, was that I found, a flaw in my tackle, uh, just a few, a few, uh, weeks before I caught the, that nine pound fish. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, what had happened is I'd, I'd been using this Andy, uh, tournament line and, um, they make line that's IGFA certified and it shouldn't break over the rated strength. Um, but, but this spool of two pound test line that I had was about 15 years old. And so I started to wonder, you know, is this line uh, losing some strength? I mean, is it is it breaking at its full potential? So I decided to test it, and I was pretty shocked to find out I was only breaking at one and a half pounds. So I'm hmm. I'm losing like uh, seven or uh, 
yeah. seven tenths of a pound of breaking strength. So I ended up getting on the internet, ordering several spools of uh, different two pound rated lines and starting testing. I started to test those. Um, and then I found one of those lines in particular that uh, consistently broke at just over two pounds. And uh, since the IGFA tests all their lines using the metric system, that's acceptable because one kilogram, which would be the two pound tippet record, is actually 2.2 pounds. So as long as it broke under 2.2 pounds, it was good. So at that point, you know, I'm thinking this is this is a potential game changer. I mean, I, I've I've just increased the the strength of my line by almost 50 percent, um, and I was so excited about that discovery that I told my wife, uh, I'm going to catch a world record with this new line. And she's like, yeah, whatever. But it was just so funny that, you know, a week later, it was literally a week later, Mm -hmm. I caught that fish. Um, But but once again, if I hadn't discovered that old two pound line was breaking a pound and a half, I would have never caught it. So a couple couple interesting things happened, I thought, that that made that uh, that happen. And I remember you texting me that week later. Yes. Because <laughs> when we when we were talking right. on the boat, when we were talking on the boat, so we first off, it was a phenomenal trip because I got a chance to fish with you. Oh, I did break off a really good fish. Remember that? Yes, first thing? I do. <laughs> uh, we, yes, I know. As on me. No, I'll talk about it, dude. I am. I'm a flawed fisherman. Absolutely, hundred percent. We all are. No, we all I, are. You're right. It's, uh, yeah. Anyway, so. But we, great time, great time. It it was amazing. So, but when you texted me, you're like, I broke it. And I remember talking about it on your boat. And I said, Jay, I kind of asked a similar question. You know, what are you after? Like, what's your next goal? And that was like, I want to break the two pound. And you were kind of talking about it. And I remember your excitement, you're like, oh my God. And so you were talking about the process and submission and this, that, and the other thing. And so Sure enough, as it turns out, you know, obviously it's certified now as a, as a two pound, um, IGFA world record. So let me transition to that. Cause that's a great segue into kind of the IGFA submission process to me. And I know we've talked a little bit about it, but for a lot of the folks that are listening out there, this is probably incredibly foreign to them. The IGFA world record submission process. What what is that? I mean, like, what is that like? Is it sound something as simple? Like if I was going fishing, I'm using 20 pound cigar senshi on a, on a, and I catch a, let's say a 15 pound fish. Do I just bring it in? And so right. uh, there's gotta be more to that. You're talking about testing break strength and this, that, and the other thing. Like talk us through, uh, your process or the IJFA submission process. Yeah, there's a lot more to that. So in just using your example real quickly, um, if you're using most lines that you, well, most lines you buy off the shelf, they're not going to break at the, at the strength that they're rated on the, on the carton or on the package. Um, so you're probably not going to be eligible for any line classes, especially if you were using 20 pound, cause that's the maximum line class, uh, that, that they have. Now you could be eligible for an all tackle world record though, um, because that's just the biggest fish of, of any species. Um, and it can be caught on, on any kind of tackle, uh, fly rod, you know, bait casting, spinning, whatever. Um, and on any class line, I think up to 130 pounds. (laughs) So I don't think you have to worry about that. So Craig, 
So Craig Carson's record, if you caught it on whatever tackle, whatever line, whatever lore, uh, if it was 17-8, you'd own the current world record. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, one thing, well, there are several ways that you can qualify uh, a catch for a world record. Um, there's there's the all-tackle world record that we just spoke about. Mm-hmm. And then there are the IGFA line class records. And, and those are the ones, you know, that I'm pursuing because I highly doubt I'm gonna, I'll ever catch a 17-pound trout. But, but again, with the fly rod, um, these records are obtainable. And so the, IGFI, the IGFA line class records include a two-pound tippet world record, four-pound tippet world record, a six-pound tippet world record, eight-pound, 12-pound, 16-pound, and 20-pound. Those are the classes that mm-hmm. you're allowed to submit fish under. Um, and so obviously, you know, in order to break one of those, you, you need to catch the biggest fish on that particular line. And the IGFA does require that, you know, you send it in and test it. So it has to test below that line strength. Um, mm-hmm. and, and just so, go ahead. So if you caught, yeah, if you caught a fish, like, let's say you caught a nine pound, right? When you caught the nine mm-hmm. pound, did you have to submit the fly, submit a set amount of actual tippet or line or leader or whatever you do. Um, you, you, okay. for any, um, well, for a fly class, um, record, you have to submit the entire leader, um, which is basically from the fly line, you know, then it's then your leader all the way mm-hmm. down to the, to the fly itself. So yes, you do have to submit that. And, um, you know, you have to do a lot of other things too. Um, mm-hmm. If you go through the process, I mean, the the first thing you need to do is you need to weigh the fish. So, you know, you need to be prepared for that. Um, I keep a certified. So, well, go ahead. I was going to ask you. So, how like how does that look for you? Like, would it talk about your process? So, my process um, is. So, do you have like a certified scale yes, and all that stuff? Absolutely. I have a certified Boga grip, uh, scale and, uh, the, uh, the Boga grip, um, has to be certified, but if, if you don't have it certified, like say you caught a record and, uh, and you didn't have a scale that was certified, you can send it in later and, uh, and get it certified through the IGFA. Uh, but, but to be on the safe side, you know, I just send mine in and uh, get it certified every year, and the certification's good for a year. So that way, I can take that out of the equation. I don't have to worry that my scale is not going to be certified. Um, the only other equipment, though, that you really need is a uh, like some type of flexible tape measure, like a seamstress tape or something like that, and you need a okay. camera um, because you know what you need to do is you if you caught a world record. You need to get the weight of the fish, of course. And uh, you. one of the things is you have to be on the ground or standing in the water when you get that official weight. You can't weigh it on a boat. Uh, so that's one of the most hmm. important things, um, you know, because you could lose a world record if you just, just uh, weighed it on the boat. Uh, 
What? Why is that? You Jeff? know, I don't know for sure, but I, I I suspect it's because you know if you're out on the rough seas and the boat is bouncing around and the scales bouncing up and down, that makes you sense. probably couldn't get an accurate measurement. I think it's more for offshore guys than it is for people Got like it. us who fish inshore. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So you also you need some measurements. You have to measure the girth of the fish, and you have to measure the length of the fish. Um, and then there are also um, some pictures that you need to have. You need you need a photo mm-hmm. of the fish um, laying on its side, and they prefer that it be on some type of measuring device so that they can confirm how long it was. Even though that's not a not an IGFA requirement, but it gives them an idea of you know if, if the weight is kind of jiving with the length. Um, you mm-hmm. need a photo of the of the angler uh, with the fish. Uh, you need a photo of the scale that you used. And uh, you need a photo of the rod and reel that you used. Um, and of course, you know, if you're out on the water trying to do all this stuff, you don't necessarily have to take pictures of your rod and reel and your scale um, while sure. you're out there. Um, so if you're prepared for all this, you can do these things really quickly. And, uh, and that's important to me because I never wanted to kill any of the records that I caught. So I always try to be prepared. And, and, you know, I'm proud to say that, that of all those records, all three of the records that I caught, uh, they were all released in good condition and, and I'm pretty sure they survived. That is awesome. That that's amazing. So doc, I mean, about how long does this submission process take? Well, for my records, it took uh, anywhere from three to six months, uh, from the time I sent the application in until they, uh, were approved. Okay. So it's a pretty lengthy process. So it is from the time you caught it. What back in that was in what May? Well, I, I of, caught the. Well, you talking about the two pound tippet? I caught yeah. um, in uh, in March, March eighteenth. I mean, I'm sorry, 18, March twenty fourth, right. not March. March March twenty fourth, the two thousand eighteen. Okay, and so when did that actually get certified? That was a pretty long time. Yeah, I, I don't remember the specific day. I just remember it was six months yeah. um, afterward. Is now is there like, like once it's actually certified, do they send you something? They do. I mean, you you get a certificate, and you know, then your obviously your your name is uh goes into their database of records, and they print out a a, a book every year of all the records. But uh, it's also easy to access it, you know, online. And I, I don't think that if you're, well, if you're not a member of IGFA, I don't think you can access all the, all the records. Um, but if you are, it's pretty interesting because, you know, you can go in there. Like I could go in and I can look at the records that preceded mine. I mean, they even give you the history of, you know, which records were there and which ones were broke. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of good information in there. Is there any like sort of financial reward or or some sort of like financial compensation if you break a world record or hold a world record? Is there like an annual, you know, dollar amount that they would give you, or is this just kind of notoriety? Um, no, there there is absolutely, you know, no. No, I just I, I have no yeah, idea. No, you know there's like, there's no financial be- reward. In fact, uh, the application itself, if you're not an IGFA member, costs a hundred dollars. <laughs> Just, oh wow! So you have to be in. Okay, if got, it, if you, got it. Because before everybody, go, yeah, before everybody out there listening starts to go, man, I'm gonna go catch a world class fish. 
there is no financial reward. So other than obviously respect and notoriety, which you, which you definitely well, have. And I'm so, not even looking uh, for that. I mean, it's just for, for no, my no. satisfaction, to be honest. Uh, sure. Of course. Um, yeah. So would you be, that's a good, that's, that's a, that's a great thought process because I mean, would you be upset if someone actually did break one of your records? Well, you know, I think that would depend on who broke it. Um, and, and what I mean by that is uh, if someone like you or myself, who's got a true passion for catching big sea trout, breaks one of my yeah. records, well, I would totally respect that and I'd be happy for them. But, you know, if someone yeah. who really didn't care about sea trout one bit was just, was just fly fishing yeah. for redfish or something, and for whatever reason, they had tippet that was IGFA legal and a giant trout just happened to appear, you know, right in front of them and was yeah. in a feeding mode and vulnerable being caught. And they end up catching it by just blind luck. Well, that would probably be a little harder for me to swallow. But, you know, in the end, I, I don't think I'd be that upset. Um, you know, there's just there's other records. So so I could go after those. <laughs> so so speaking of which, I mean, you got three. I mean, what is the next goal? What's the next pursuit? Um. Well, the next goal is to get the 20-pound tippet world record. And, and and we haven't talked about this. And I, I think I mentioned this, you know, before the podcast. But uh, but something mm-hmm. we haven't talked about is uh, or that, that ties in, you know, with, with, with that goal is that uh, as of May of this year, and so just recently, I, um, the IGFA implemented this new minimum weight requirement for all of the line class world records and what they are or they decided um is that for a fish to qualify for a uh, world record it had to weigh at least half as much as the line class that it was caught on so for example you know if you were using 20 pound test line then you would have to catch at least a 10 pound fish to qualify it as a record um and so so that's go ahead that's the pursuit right now as a 20 as a 10 pound fish. It on is because pounds. now my, my 20 pound record, you know, that had existed, you know, since, uh, since 2012, you know, is now basically, you know, vacant. It's, it's gone. So it's not, it's not recognized as mm-hmm. a, as a record any longer. Hey everyone. I'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors. As you know, we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout, as well as our conservation. Fortunately for us, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky support that same passion, which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this will be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative, and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. Growing up in the Tampa area and kind of recapping, I'm recapping from my own brain here because understanding the levity of, of kind of who and what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but so under growing up in the Tampa area, you know, really kind of growing up, seeing big fish at a young age and kind of seeing the passion and, and now embracing and, and having this passion throughout kind of your, your youth to adulthood to uh, then shaping you to then, okay, Hey, I want to start targeting these fish. And so now you go out and do it. You, you go out and you catch, you know, the three IGFA world records. And so now 
I want to talk about, I'm, I'm sure probably some folks would want to even talk about like, how did you, like, what is the process of trying to find literally world-class fish? Like, what, is there something you do that's specific to you well, and your well, approach uh, for, for targeting? Yeah, I mean, big, I can tell you fish. what I do. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, no, and I, this is this is a podcast talking Absolutely. to you. I, I want to hear <laughs> okay. this. I want to Well, hear this. first of all, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I strongly believe is that successful fishing is, is about putting as many factors that you can control in your favor. Um, and since, you know, I have a full-time job and I can't be on the water as much as I'd like. So I had to try to figure out some way, you know, to make the best use of the limited fishing time that I have out on the water. Um, and, and this meant, you know, uh, you know, just trying to figure out when I had the best chance of catching uh, a world mm -hmm. record trout. So time of month, exactly. maybe time of year. Yeah. So I started, um, I started collecting that kind of data. I started collecting and analyzing that kind of data, um, mm -hmm. from as many sources, um, that I could find, um, as far as, you know, when, when these big fish were caught. And so, you know, I, I, I always kept a fishing log, you know, since 2001, I kept a pretty detailed fishing log. So I used that data. Um, I looked at documented uh, trophy trout that were caught by friends of mine. So I had mm -hmm. that data to go by. I looked at the current and previous IGFA world records. Um, so I had that. Um, I looked at, uh, there are various books. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard, uh, there was a book that uh, uh, Scott Murray um, published. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Texas Trophy exactly. Trout for Tomorrow. So there's a, yeah. there's a lot of information in there. If you go through those those catches, those extraordinary catches, you know, you have the, hey, you have the dates on most of them. You can you can look mm -hmm. at things like the what the moon phase was and, and that kind of thing. And then most recently, you know, I've just been blessed to, <laughs> that you're giving me the opportunity to look through some of the data that, that you're getting from the Dirty mm -hmm. 30 program. And so- yeah, and well, go ahead. No, and I've, <laughs> I've seen you, I've seen you always like it. Right. And I'm like, knowing that, okay, I, I know I don't have to share anything with you. I know you're capturing the own, your own kind of data points. And so what, like, what are, what are things that you're capturing? So I'm, I'm capturing obviously the person where they live, kind of where they caught it, date it was caught, what they caught it on and whether the fish was released. What else are you getting? Well, in, in my logs, I mean, it's it's basically the same thing that you just said. I mean, I do all those. Mm -hmm. and, and in the beginning, you know, I track just about everything and I still do. And I'm not sure of the significance of it because some of it, you know, they're just hard to 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 get trends from. Um, but, you know, obviously, you know, the uh, the date that the, the fish was caught, um, the weight of the fish, um, you know, Ooh. I'm looking at water temperatures. Um, barometric pressure, tides, water levels, uh, amount of bait that was present. I'm trying to think of all the things that I, that I'm doing. I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving some of that, that wind direction, uh, wind velocity. What about my, like moon phase and Absolutely. all that stuff? And those are the, well, that's the things that really matter. And, uh, and when I started analyzing all this data, and in particular, um, you know, fish that were 10 pound and larger, I started seeing these trends. Um, 
and and so it became apparent that that the time of year and you know these are things that that you have on your your dirty 30 uh list uh the moon phases and and one thing you don't have there is salooner periods and and, you know i think Mm -hmm. that's critical too but you know i i discovered that all of those things really play a big role in uh, catching world record fish so having said that um you know, I don't know if you want to review this, but but I did prepare some of that data, and I don't know if your listeners would uh, be interested, but uh, I would imagine they probably would. And, and you know, what kind of yeah. stuff I found? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Maybe actually, no. I mean, maybe what we can do is, um, you know, we can obviously talk outside the podcast. Well, episode no, I'm fine with can... presenting this. You know, and in fact, I I, I kind of want yeah. to because it just shows, uh, you know, some of the things that I think. Well, I know you think like I do too, as far as um, these these moon phases and salooner periods. But just for an example, for the listeners, because I think they'll appreciate this. Um, okay. The data, you know, for for ten pound and over fish shows that that most of those fish were caught in the month of March. So just thinking about time of year right now, you know, most of those okay. um, 10 pound and over fish of that, that whole list that I have um, were caught in March. And then February was the second most productive month. Uh, May was the third and January was the fourth. But in general, the bulk of all these big fish are caught, you know, sometime in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um and you know that's those are numbers that uh, support a theory that I've had for a long time, um, and that is that that bigger trout start spawning earlier than smaller ones, and consequently, you know, there's a larger concentration of bigger fish on the flats in the early spring, where where someone with a fly rod can catch them, or a conventional tackle as well. And there was actually mm-hmm. a study um, to kind of back this up. It was performed by McMichael and Peter in 1989 that. Uh, that concluded that older trout become reproductively active earlier in the season. So, you know, obviously the older ones should be bigger. That doesn't, that's not always the case, but, but it just kind of backs that up. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, I just think there's a, there's a big advantage to, to targeting these fish early in the spring. And, and one of the other things associated with that, that early spawning activity is that prior to uh, to spawning, um, a female's uh, ovaries, you know, get hydrated, and that can account for up to a ten percent increase in their weight. Um, so obviously, that makes a, a big difference for me when I'm when I'm pursuing world records. So that's that's as that's as far as time of year. You know, if I if you had to if I had to pick, you know, my favorite month to fish. Uh, I'd probably pick March uh, just because statistically that looks like when most of the big fish are caught. Um, And then going on to moon phases, um, the data for the moon phases shows that 33% of trout uh, over 10 pounds are caught around the full moon and 30% around the new moon. And Interesting. Yeah. So that's pretty significant because when you compare that to... Um, the first quarter moon, which was only 19% were caught around the first quarter and 18% around the last quarter. It, it, it does show that it seems like there's more big trout or really big trout, trout over 10 pounds caught around the new and full moons. Um, so, you know, that just tells me that my odds of catching a big trout are going to be better, obviously fishing around those. 
And, and what's really cool is if you look at that even closer, of all those fish caught around the full moon, 83% were caught before the full moon. And, uh, and I remember you saying something about your dad really like liking uh, fishing, I think a week before the full moon. Well, yep. you know, this, this shows that there's a lot of data to back up, uh, you know, what he already knows. He probably didn't even need to do any kind of analysis, <laughs> but it, it's just pretty cool that, uh, that the, uh, that the percentage is, is that high. So if you are going to fish around a full moon, you definitely want to be fishing before it before absolutely so that all this is interesting and here's why because so first off listening to your own data that you're that you're collecting from a myriad of sources kind of like what we're doing with 3030 in the trophy trout citation which is we're collecting again from a myriad of sources our listeners our followers from north from virginia to uh, obviously to south texas and so without with uh, let me rephrase it with all these data points from across these estuaries funneling into a certain area, you can start to kind of see some of these trends. I've shared some of these on Speckled Truth, especially with regards to kind of lore technique by season. I love that one because it definitely shows, I think, a correlation with the fish and how they change and adapt their uh, eating approach based off of maybe bait availability in the actual fishery. But the other one that's really, so it's really that. And then the other one's obviously moon phase. And so between, I talked about this as well, the 12 days, so plus or minus, so plus or minus the f- three days before and after a full, uh, a new moon, excuse me, and three days before and after a full moon, we're seeing um, it's of those 12 days, there's like 58% <laughs> of the fish that are registered come in those 12 days, right? Yeah. I'm not I mean, a very good mathematician, I mean, but the other, the remaining come from the other, what, uh, days of the month, the other 18 days of the month, right? And so exactly. that shows that there's a tighter correlation around those moon phases. Now, unlike your data is actually, we show a little bit of a tip to the new moon and, and actually pre-new moon. Um, and so that's interesting there. Now, keep in mind, we're not just measuring uh, 30 inch fish. Of course, that I'd, ha- I'd have to go back and take a look at just at the 59 that we had and maybe do the 59. And then I think the the 93 that we had this year and just do the dirty 30s. I'd be interested to see because we have a we have seen a little bit of variance with regards to to that right in terms of like an actual 30 inch fish and in a 27 inch fish you would still think they're pretty large and they kind of do similar things they actually kind of don't they're still they're still adapting and changing uh so but all that being said is there is that correlation between a new and a full and so like you i work a full-time job i get i'm I'm going to fish 10 days a month. That's my goal for from now until April. And I used to fish three, four days a week, pretty much my whole life. And then obviously charred before that, but that's significantly less. And so now I'm trying to go down there and kind of like stealing a a phrase from Mike McBride. I'm going to go and try to catch them on purpose. (laughs) I'm trying to put all those odds in my favor to go and actually target these fish on purpose and catch them on purpose. Exactly. Right. And so- but that one of the things that you mentioned, though, Doc, which we don't put a whole lot of 
no pun intended, weight on is actual weight. It, so you you actually focus on collecting weight? Well, yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, I guess that came up in the context of trying to analyze the Dirty 30 data. Um, and uh, since IGFA records um, are based on weight, you know, obviously that's... Uh, mm-hmm that's what I, I want to focus on. Um, there can be, you know, a large variability in the weight of a 30 inch fish. So I really didn't feel comfortable incorporating, you know, all that 30, the, all that dirty 30 data into the analysis, mm-hmm. um, that I did if I didn't know the actual weight and, and, and yeah. And since I'm specifically targeting 10 pound trout, I, I just feel like, you know, I only want to use data that's associated with a 10 pound or greater fish because that's the size of fish I need to catch the next world record. And like you were saying, you know, it's not to say that a seven or nine pound, 30 inch trout behaves a lot differently. But when I do analyze the fish from eight to nine pounds and I compare that to the fish over 10 pounds, you know, I do see some subtle differences just like you and I just talked about. Um, And then- so, I mean, yeah, and you've seen some of those differences in the study that you've done from double-digit fish to, let's say, you know, heavy six to low eight-pound fish? Yes, and, you know, and most of the data, though, again, I, I was focusing on eight to nine-pound fish and then 10 pounds and over. So I, mm-hmm. I didn't really dip down okay. into the to the, yeah, to yeah, the yeah. lower ones. Okay, because, yeah, I mean, we've, we've actually had a 30-inch fish. I think it was like six and a half pounds from Alabama submitted. And uh, obviously, super duper skinny fish, but you know we've also had I think we had one from Alabama, also in Dolphin Island this spring, that was like twenty eight and a half. That was almost uh, nine and a half pounds. Right, just an absolute. Yeah, you beast. just never know. It, so that's an interesting um, perspective for me because now you're taking not only just the data, now you're categorizing it by weight because that's what you need. Right. And so now you're seeing some variances there that you're trying to target and even hone in even more and kind of garner the, or, or just shape your craft even more to go and focus on that specific fish. That's huge. And, and I mean, well, I used to fish redfish tournaments and I've kind of used this analogy a lot. Maybe folks who have fished redfish tournaments, competitive redfish tournaments, is that there's a big difference between going to find a 26 and three quarter inch redfish that's just under the slot of 27, that's eight pounds, versus going to find another fish that same size that that's like six and a half or six and three Correct. quarter, right? These fish live in sometimes totally different areas, or there are certain parts of an estuary that are just have much more nutrient rich environment, you know? And so I would envision kind of something similar is that you're really trying to focus in more specifically on that. Is that sure. somewhat true? I mean, you know, I'm trying to figure out what estuaries, you know, most of the, the 10 pound and greater fish are coming from, um, because you know, their, their genetics are probably mm-hmm. going to be a little bit different. And, and again, it goes back to just trying to put the odds in my favor. Yeah. Regarding your setup though, I mean, like, like what, what are you actually throwing? Like what, if you can like describe your setup in terms of your fly setup for folks that are actual fly fishermen out there that maybe listen to this podcast. Sure. Well, my, my fly fishing setup really depends on the conditions and I generally will use the lightest fly rod, uh, that I can, you know, given the conditions. And and the reason I do that 
um, is because a fly line is very heavy. I, I don't know, you know, I don't know how many of your list, listeners are uh, fly fishermen. Probably not a lot. But when that when that mm-hmm. line lands on the water, I mean, it can spook sea trout very easily. So so the lighter, um, you know, smaller line is is going to make less of a disturbance when it hits the water. And if you're sight fishing, it, it shouldn't matter too much because. You know, if you're putting the fly in the right place, uh, the, the, the actual fly line is, is a good, you know, 11 feet or, or so behind it. Um, but still, again, to improve my odds, you know, if, if the wind is, is not blowing and it's super calm and I'm not having to, flo- uh, having to throw big flies, then I use a five weight rod. And uh, for good. just about all other conditions, I use a seven weight rod. And that probably sounds somewhat light for, for some of the fly fishermen out there. Um, but again, the reason I'm using these lighter rods is to try and avoid spooking the fish as much. Um, my favorite fly rod um, is a Sage X. I don't know if you want to know about brands or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. No, go with the Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I the love detail. the Sage X rods. They're they're real accurate. Um, and then I use either a Sage uh, 4580. It's a carbon fiber reel because it's really light with a really um, big uh, diameter uh, so you can, uh, you know, collect a lot of line. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I use a Nautilus X, uh, XL max reel, uh, on some of my rods. And, and again, it, it's a really nice, uh, lightweight, um, reel with a really good drag. Um, the, 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 um, fly lines that I'm using are, it just depend, uh, if I'm sight fishing, then I'm going to use a, uh, a gray colored, uh, airflow floating line. Um, mm. and, uh, typically I'll have a 10 to 11 foot leader on that. And the reason I use, you know, a line that I can see a little bit better is, uh, it just makes it easier to, to make a more accurate cast. But with the gray, uh, I just don't, I don't think it contrasts as much with the sky and, and again, less likely to, uh, spook the fish. But then I also blind cast sometime or sometimes, and uh, for blind casting, I use a clear um, Cortland floating line, and I typically use it like an 11 or 13 foot leader. I can get away with a, a longer leader blind casting uh, because I'm not necessarily, you know, always casting or, or having to cast into the wind to get to a fish when I'm when I'm sight uh, uh, casting. Um, mm-hmm. And then, no, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Adam. No, I'm it's sorry. fine. Sorry, now, I was just going to say. Uh, um, you know, the tippet size would be whatever strength that, that I'm trying to, to get a world record in. And, and, mm-hmm. and on the end of that tippet, I typically use a, a 15 pound, uh, fluorocarbon, uh, bite tippet. And all that's tied to nope. IGFA specifications for fly fishing. You have to have at least 15 inches of your class tippet. It can be longer, um, but it has to be at least 15 inches. And then you can either tie your fly onto the end of that, or you can use what is called a bite tippet, and they will allow you to use a 12-inch bite tippet. So it has to be a, you know, a maximum of, of 12 inches, and that can be of basically any strength uh, that you want. Gotcha. Are you always fishing for a world record? Like every time you, I know you fish out of Hell's Bay. Are you all every time you push that Hell's Bay off the? The skids. I mean, are you always looking for a world class fish? 
Well, when I'm, yeah, pretty much when I'm by myself now, you know, I did a lot of fishing this summer with my daughters because um, we were in the, mm-hmm. when the CCA um, started. And I was about to say, they, they, they achieved something spectacular, right? <laughs> yeah, one of them did. Uh, Valerie, actually, um, my, these, I, these are my twins. They're my youngest girls, but uh, Valerie, who's one of the twins, uh, she actually won the, uh, the, the top prize, which is a $25,000 scholarship. Um, so That's just, awesome. uh, just amazing. <laughs> I saw her holding up that check on Facebook. I'm like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not shocked, but that's amazing. That's awesome that you get a chance to do that still with your girls. It really is. It, 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 it it's just incredible. I mean, we, we made so many great memories, um, and, uh, it, it's just been great. Hey, so for all the conventional tackle guys out there, uh, what are some of the conventional tackle or some of the conventional lures that you throw or what's, you know, kind of your conventional setup? Well, I, I just typically use a, a seven and a half foot, um, light action spinning rod. Um, okay. I use the 3000 Shimano Stratic CI4 reels. Um, I put 10 pound, uh, power pro, um, that that super mm-hmm. eight slick line and then generally tie about a nine foot uh section of 15 pound fluorocarbon onto that um usually using an fg knot really always using an fg knot because it slides through the guides really well okay and it you know allows me to have that longer leader which you know i don't know if it's important but again <laughs> i'll say it a million times that you know i i think it, it it does put the odds a little bit more in your favor by having that long leader and maybe not uh Mm-hmm. not putting fish off. Um, what are your, what are some of your favorite conventional lures to throw? Well, I love top waters. I mean, you know, most of the time, if I'm just out there messing around or trying to, trying to locate fish, I'll be using some form of a top water lure. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like the, I like the, uh, super spooks, both the, uh, you know, the regular size super spook and mm-hmm. super spook junior. Um, I don't fly. I mean, I don't uh, conventional fish a lot, but, uh, I like the seven M yeah. mirror lure. Um, and I like the, uh, I like the, the mirror deans, you know, the, the larger yeah, ones seven. and the smaller ones. Um, okay. and those are probably my favorite lures. Um, you know, did you throw a lot of corky fat boys oh, when you lived geez. here in Texas? Yeah. You know, the, the problem is, <laughs> yeah. the problem here in Florida, you know, is that it never gets cold enough, in my opinion, to even throw those. Um, you know, I always felt that, that the corky and the fat boy, less so the fat boy, uh, was more of a cold water lure. And I mean, I, mm-hmm. I won so many, well, I won. I think most of my tournaments on a corky of some sort, it, either the, the, uh, sinking or the, uh, fat boy the f- floater. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, it just seems like in Florida, um, you know, the, the fish are more attracted to, you know, something that's moving a, a little quicker with a lot more flash, like some of the hard baits, mm-hmm. um, unless it gets cold. I mean, if it gets really cold here, it works you know, just amazingly well, just like it, like it did in Texas. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, in the, in the spring here, when it warms up, it it just doesn't seem like they, they respond as well to, to corkies. Yeah. I got on a pretty good run there before I left and moved back to, to Texas. 
there in the northern reaches of the Banana River, actually. It, it got pretty cold that last winter we were that we had in 18. It actually got really cold. And so right before it got just bitter, bitterly cold, um, actually it got on a really, really good fat boy bite for about almost three weeks. And I actually and I just posted a picture about it on uh on a page to the day. It was actually one November and it was pretty daggum chilly right there in a like I said in the northern banana river. And I caught a really, really good fish, about 27. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a really great fish. It thumped the big clear with the uh, the 07, which is that clear with that chartreuse tail. Fat boy, man, she just smoked it. But actually, it was a it was that whole, it was like three weeks. And what I found was is actually those fish were up on those flats, got really cold, and I think they were eating needlefish. Mm. I mean, you could see them kind of cruising, and they were up in the grass. They were crashing needlefish and i think anything that looked clear and had some sort of like little flash but some sort of iridescence they just demolished they wouldn't hit anything super dark or it was it was pretty interesting yeah and again you know do you remember what uh, the temperature was yeah it it was definitely in the low 50s it was definitely the water temp was easily probably in the low 60s which is pretty cold for south florida especially that early in the year and i remember getting a couple of really hard, cold hard fronts that really pushed through and they were kind of unrelenting and it got the water temps in the upper 50s for a while because i know we had a, a lot of snook die off in the in the northern banana river um so I, I know it definitely got cold there for a while but it was an awesome bite for a while anyway yeah I, again you know if it does get down below 65 uh then then i would definitely be using them yeah. But that's awesome. So, so doc, we're, we're close to an hour and, and I hate to do this, but I'd love to have you on again. If that would be, that would be amazing if you're okay with sure. that, but yeah, awesome. But before we kind of, I guess, end the show, I asked some, some questions, which kind of leads to, to generally more discussion. And so the first question I want to ask you, I think you kind of alluded to it. Do you think Craig Carson's record, 17-7, you think it'll ever be broken? Uh, that's a tricky question, and I I think it will. I do think it will, but this is the thing. I do not think that uh, it'll be uh, broken by a native spotted sea trout in any of our estuaries. Um, unless the biologists can figure out what's causing the demise of, of Florida's east coast and and, and try to find some way mm-hmm. to correct it. I just don't think we'll ever see a trout that big again. Um, I think Florida's problem is we just have too many people that are moving into this state and it's just really taxing our, our natural resources. Um, I do have a little more optimism for Texas because I, I don't think they're experiencing quite the type of uh, population growth that we're seeing here in Florida but I still think it's a it's a long shot. And the reason I said yes, though, is because, you know, I've thought about this before. Um, I, I think that we may be forced to start genetically engineering sea trout to replace these native populations that just won't be able to be sustained because of, of the poor water uh, quality issues. And, you know, there are already, you know, several um, entities that are genetically engineering other fish like uh, salmon and, and tilapia. And, that, you know, they're engineering them to grow faster and be more uh, resistant to disease and things like that. 
Um, so I hope that never comes about. Um, but you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future. Uh, if I just, I pray that, that we never have to resort to that, but, but I, I don't know, I could just see that happening. Um, but as far as, you know, our native, our native fish, if, if, if nothing changes, I, I think it'd be very difficult to break. I have never thought of that about the genetically engineered, like, yeah, I mean it's it's crazy. I've never crazy thought of what that. people like, are doing, I, you know, with with uh, crops, everything, you know, all this genetically uh, modified stuff. It, it's just unreal. If there's a reason for a pause right now in this podcast, is because like I'm physically trying to like wrap my brain around like what's what was just said because that is something I have given no thought to whatsoever. And I've seen it firsthand, especially in the Florida areas, especially with in terms of water quality. Oh my gosh! It, and so, wow, I, I don't <laughs> even know how to respond to that. So <laughs> I'm going to yeah, move on. Fine. If just because I, I've never maybe given it that that amount of thought, I always just say yes because I'm always inspired. Maybe perpetual optimism gives me that. Well, I hope it happens. I really do, and I hope there's big yeah. fish swimming around out there, like uh, like the beast of legend. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. I I guess that's kind of proof that there there maybe there are some in South Texas. And again, you know, I do have a lot more optimism for, for the Texas coast. And it probably won't be long before I'm having to go over there and spend a, a lot more time fishing. <laughs> if I heard you right, do you think, and you might make a lot of people mad here, but do you think Texas would actually produce the next world record? Um, I mean, potentially yes. And, and, and there are some areas like in, in Northeast Florida, where I think that a potential world record um, could come out of. Um, but yeah, right now, I mean, I, I would place my money on Texas over Florida. That's for sure. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, between the genetically engineering fish and now I'm fishing in a world re- potential world record place, you're about to get a lot of people inspired here in a, in a coast of Texas to, <laughs> to start donning some waders and wading flats. That's awesome. All right. So, uh, this may be somewhat rhetorical, but what, what is your favorite estuary or complex to target big fish or area state whatever yeah well again uh you know used to be that um by far my favorite estuary was the indian river lagoon and particularly Mm. the southern indian river lagoon and you know the fort pierce area exactly you know all the Uh. way from sebastian vero beach fort pierce Mm. i mean stewart's a wreck now so that's kind of out but uh but back in the day when, you know, when they weren't having so many discharges, um, the Stewart area was, was just phenomenal. Uh, and that mm-hmm. was by far my favorite uh, area to fish was down in, in that region. Um, you know, I, I was fishing the Vero Beach area recently. And over the summer, the, the seagrass had, a, had actually started growing back really, really well. I mean, the water cleared up. Um, the water cleared up in Sebastian. Vero, uh, and the seagrass was growing really well. I mean, it, it looked amazing. And, uh, I heard that in Sebastian, you know, all that good growth, you know, I think we had a bunch of rain and, and 
and all that grass died off again. Um, hmm. And then in Vero, I haven't really been back to Vero uh, since the last day that my daughter and I fished in that tournament. And that was right. That was uh, just prior to uh, do the last hurricane that we had that was, was coming through. Um, yeah. But uh, when we went on that trip, um, it looked like the same exact thing was happening. It looked like the, the grass was uh, dying off again and the water mm. clarity had, had really gone uh, uh, really bad. Um, yeah. So, so again, I, I still would prefer to fish in, in that area. Uh, there's, it has a history of just having a lot of really, really big fish. Um, a lot of the line class of world records that still exist, you know, they came from Fort Pierce or around that area. Um, so I just had, I think it has the potential to, to produce some, some really large fish and, you know, it, it is my favorite fishery, but, uh, but right now it, it, it's just not happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Like, what about like the Baffin complex or the Galveston complex, you know, from what you, I mean, obviously you've fished that a lot. You've had a lot of success in, in some of those areas. Yeah. I mean, I, I like Baffin. Um, I, I really like the, uh, the lower Laguna Madre and, uh, mm-hmm. the Mansfield area. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and, and even all the way down to like Port Isabel, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that whole area, I think that's the area where I think, you know, a potential, uh, world record could come from. Um, you know, it's funny cause my buddy, John, the guy I was, uh, was talking to you, um, you about earlier, John Gill. I mean, we were just talking mm-hmm. the other day, uh, about how, you know, in Matagorda right now, I mean, you know, they're catching a lot of really healthy fish, but, but he and I both agree that you usually don't catch those really big ones there. Um, you know, 10, 11, 12 pounders. I mean, well, you don't catch those a lot of places anyway, but, but I feel like you have a much better shot. I mean, down South, I mean, John's, John's caught like 14, uh, fish over 10 pounds. Um, yeah. So, uh, that's so crazy. It it is. Um, but you know, and, and most of those fish came from Texas and South Texas. Now he caught, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think he only caught one 10 pounder, uh, in Florida with me. But, uh, so almost all those fish came from Texas. Yeah. In, in L Scott Murray's book, it, for folks who haven't read it, I, I don't have the actual book here in where I'm at, at my desk, but it's world-class trophy trout for tomorrow or Texas trophy trout for tomorrow. I'll have to post it maybe in the show notes, but L Scott Murray does an amazing job. And it, he really talks about a, a myriad of different kind of Texas legends. They tell their story about maybe some a, an experience of of kind of their biggest fish that they caught. And so, them telling the story is just in, so captivating. It is. And one of the stories that sticks out to me is actually really, really awesome was obviously when Jim Wallace broke his state record from the eyes, I think of Mike Blackwood. And in that book, he talks about that day, them going out there. And when Jim Wallace, I think broke the state record with a 13 and a half pound fish, 
that day there were there were like two fish also registered at Roy's Bait and Tackle that were like over twelve pounds with uh, you know a couple other I think he said something like there were almost a dozen fish over the ten pound mark that were caught that day. It's it just is. absolutely ridiculous, Unreal. you know, to even think that they that's even possible. It really is. So anyway, I, it's just awesome to kind of. And, and the cool thing about it is actually we'll talk to Mike Blackwood here in, in this podcast at some point and kind of get that story firsthand from the man who saw oh, that, it. You know? That'll be a good so one. That's, that's <laughs> going to be cool. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, that that so, book is really, really good. Um, so that would be cool if you could you could post that for the listeners. Um, I'd highly, yeah. highly recommend it if, if you're at all interested in, in, in big trout. Yeah, he's a follower of the page too, uh, Mr. Murray, and uh, I've also talked to him when I got a chance to go down to, to Corpus Christi and talk to the Ananias Fishing Club. Um, David Bjork invited me out there. He's a good friend here. I think he's the actual president now, and so I got a chance to meet uh, a number of those folks, to include Mike and, and, and Scott, and another humbling experience to get up there and talk about kind of what we're doing in Speckle Truth to this established group of people that <laughs> they're probably like young man get the hell out of here no, but not at all. like like you no exactly like you sir they were incredibly uh excited and that's the humbling component is they were incredibly humble people just to invite me there listen to kind of what we had to say it was so awesome and just be a part of it and be a part of what we're doing and kind of telling their story because your story you being on this podcast a lot of people may not know Doc J. Wright. I want people to know Doc J. Wright because that's an important thing for folks in our community to know is who has done, like we're talking targeting world-class fish with a dude who's done it not once, twice, but three times and who does it perpetually and very well. And so what a resource, uh-huh. sir, you know, to have you here talking to people that is but we, we don't, you know, we don't know that. And that's a sad reality is because we've kind of gotten away from the history about it, right? We've got, maybe we've gotten away from understanding what those who've kind of paved the way for us to what we know now. I'm going to say it now. The the Mirror Lord Double D, and you've heard me talk about it, talking to Lowell Odom, the reason there's red hooks on those Mirror Lord Double Ds is because <laughs> of you, because of Doc J. Wright uh, back when you were, uh, down here. And, and so go ahead and, and tell people kind of what, you know, why you fish with those red hooks. Well, I, there was a couple of reasons that I started fishing with those red hooks. Uh, <laughs> and, and the, the one reason was they they are a stronger, um, wire hook. Uh, so, you know, I had a lot of problems with my hooks opening up. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so, so that was one reason they're like a four X, you know, treble hook. Um, they're also very sharp. Yeah. And then the other reason was, um, those hooks, uh, don't tend to rust. I mean, when I started using them, I realized, wow, then these, these don't rust, uh, as much as, as some of these other hooks do. Um, and so that's, that's the reason that I originally started using them. Yeah. And so I, I found, and I'm looking at a few here, hanging up on my rod here in my room is that they've been so beat to hell. Honestly, the hooks turn white. Yeah, you know, that, so they go from red, almost like a red that flash red wears to off exactly. Mm-hmm. To a white, right? And then, but there's not a lick of rust anywhere near them. And then, not only that, especially on the with those good quality components and split rings, 
And so that's huge, right? Targeting big fish. I love, I love the round bend versus the J hook. Exactly. Yeah. Particularly with that style of hook, and that just obviously gives it a, a much wider exactly. gap. But I just want folks to know <laughs> that the reason you're fishing these things, and it's it's something something small, but it's still uh, there's there's contributions that have been made by you guys and by uh, Jay, right? Or Jay Watkins and, and all those who've walked before us into our fishery that we need to know anyway. All right. So I want to ask this last, I want yeah, I want to ask this last question, doc. Uh, tell us about the one that got away. Oh, geez. Um, well, what's funny is I can, I can pretty honestly say that, that I've never had what I felt was a giant trout um get away <laughs> that's yeah amazing. no i mean and you know sometimes maybe i was i mean i i assumed it was a redfish and maybe it wasn't but but there was nothing that i can you know that i that would indicate to me that that i've ever lost what i thought was a a really really big fish now i have seen some monsters um you know, I've seen fish in Fort Pierce that that would definitely either equal or probably beat the all tackle world record of of seventeen pounds. I mean, just enormous. Um, so I can't say that I've ever had one of those even even you know come close to eating my fly or, or eating a lure. But uh, but but they were there. They they were definitely there. Um, as little as probably five years ago, I've seen some fish that I guarantee you were 15 pounds. In fact, uh, you know, if they were deep, you, you always couldn't tell, you know, whether it was a, a snook or a trout. Um, but there were areas, you know, that I fished that, that were fairly shallow and those fish would come up there and they were just enormous. <laughs> uh, just, just crazy. To think that as little as five years ago, that I mean, best estimation. I mean, like you said, obviously all to all tackle world record 39. Oh, there's a 39 and a half inch fish. I think the girth was like what something astronomical it was like it was 22 inches. inches. Nine, yeah. Okay. I know it was something ridiculous. Yeah. But, um, well, you, you think, you think it was a 40 inch trout or. Yeah. I I've seen two that I think were 40 inches in, in my lifetime. Uh, it, it very well could have been 40 inches in four piers. I mean, just enormous. Um, but again, you know, those fish have just totally disappeared and it is just so disappointing. Um, but I, I sure hope we can figure something out and, and, you know, get, get, figure out why the seagrass is dying off. I think that's the main yeah. issue and, yeah. uh, try to reverse that. Oh my God. I, I'm inspired to go and, and target big fish. This is my time of year. I don't fish all summer because I want to, this is it. I, I put kind of all my eggs in one basket to fish November or really October through April because I feel, I love the conditions. I love the the weather. I love how things kind of set up in terms of targeting some bigger fish here. And this is, this is inspiring for me because to listen to you kind of talk about you know, your pursuit, it, it reestablishes. And not only that, but like from, you know, some of the data we're collecting and kind of our thought process behind collecting some of the data that we're kind of on the right track. Again, all these, all that's exp 
inspiring to me to go, Hey man, let's go, right. Let, let's get after this and go and go catch, or at least challenge ourselves to go catch something as big as we can. Because I think that goes back to maybe one of your original points is that I just want to go and catch the biggest thing that I can, right? Yeah. The biggest trout that I can. And so whether that's at the, that particular day, if it's a seven pound fish because we have crummy conditions or something's not setting up, I want to go and be consistent, you know, in, in terms of catching whatever is presented to me. That's the biggest of that day, but yeah, I'm inspired doc. Oh, good. I'm inspired. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Hey, I always do it here uh, in the show. And that's asking kind of something that you want to leave in terms kind of your closing thoughts or I say parting shot, but Mike sounds like I'm mortally wounding somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'll ask you to, uh, to say, uh, really any, any of your closing remarks, sir. Well, you know, I would just, uh, I would just encourage anglers to try to embrace conservation and, and try to get involved in, in whatever, uh, conservation organization that you believe in. Um, fishing has just really been a blessing for me and, uh, and it's allowed me to share some wonderful memories with my family and my friends. And, and I'm just hoping that, you know, my daughters, uh, will get to enjoy fishing with their families. And, uh, I would love to someday have a grandson who, who enjoyed spending uh, time fishing with me. Uh, just like the bond that I had with my grandfather. And uh, unfortunately, uh, none of that uh, will be possible if, if we just can't take care of, of our environment and our estuaries. I have nothing to add. That is amazing. <laughs> Doc, thank you. Thank you oh, for thank being you. on the show tonight. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for uh, spreading the speckled truth. Uh, I I just think what you're doing is amazing, and uh, I really appreciate you promoting conservation. You got it, Doc. You got it, because I'm like you. Uh, I got three boys at some point. I want to love cherishing the moments I have with them, and I still got two more to get into a set of waders weighed alongside me. One's seven, the other one's three, but my 10-year-old, he got to experience that for the first time this year, although he's fished a lot with me, but it's all about kind of sharing those that passion and sharing our passion with them and, and bringing it on to that next generation. So, um, I, that is my, that is my main driver. That's, I think for the, the four guys that are with speckled truth, that's kind of what we see. That's the investment we make in our time and our money to talk to people and, and, and get people to understand that they have a responsibility to a resource. And so Thank yes. you for saying that. I appreciate it, especially somebody who has uh, so such leverage, I guess, in, in so many accolades, I guess, in the industry. So, uh, but uh, no yeah, thanks, Doc. I, I I really appreciate it. I'm going to take you up on your offer to to be back on as on another episode, maybe season two, right? I mean, this is season one, and so <laughs> we we got a lot to we got a lot of people to talk to across the coast. From well, the Carolinas all the way down back here to Texas, like Blackwood and, yeah. and Mr. Blackwood. And so and that's, we want them to tell our story. Go ahead, sir. Well, I'm just going to say, I mean, I think that's, a, a, you know, in a tribute to you, a, you know, that we we really do all respect you uh, a lot. And I think a lot more than you think we might. Uh, I just think what you're doing is, is, is really great.
Again, none of this happens without the support of our sponsors from Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky. Without your support, none of this is, a, is possible. So thanks again to them. We hope to see you next time here at the Speckle Truth Podcast. And we always want to leave you with this one tidbit. Always remember to take what you need and release the rest. God bless you.